You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Nathan Malingrud is the author of North American Lake Monsters, which won the Shirley Jackson Award and Wounds Stories from the Borders of Hell. And his new novel is The Strange. Thank you for joining me, Nathan. Thank you for having me on. This is a wonderful novel, and it has an unusual setting. It's New Galveston, Mars, and the year is 1931. Talk about creating that setting. Well, the setting actually came uh, first. It came before uh, the character or the story itself. I was just, uh, you know, in- intrigued with the idea of this uh, sort of extraplanetary small town uh, setting. And the uh, the approach was going to be, initially, it was going to be a kind of like a Thornton Wilder, Our Town kind of uh, story where I would just explore the place through the interactive lives of its of the of the people who live there you know the storyteller annabelle crisp is just such a compelling character uh did was she originally part of your cast and talk about creating that voice and then following it like a rocket through this novel <laughs> she was uh so i never actually started writing the actual Pros around the uh, the the original approach, but I was casting around for you know, I was like thinking of of, of characters and, and kind of like uh, dipping into their voices uh, just to see what they would you know just try them out. And uh, once I found her voice, it immediately you know it was kind of like it had this kind of volcanic energy to it. Immediately steamrolled everybody else, and it was it was uh, she she quickly took over you know the whole project and it would be, it became her story. And about her experience, and it was um, it was very propulsive. You know, I didn't. I felt like I didn't even have to work that hard. Sometimes I could just sort of dictate what she was telling me. You know, it it feels that way too, and, and it's such a she is a really powerful character. And this novel, I think, has the classic feel of, of you know American novels. It reminds me of Mark Twain of. Ray Bradbury, uh, uh, you know, True Grit. So talk about writing that, you know, a really classic uh, American vein. Your other, your short stories have been, I think, also American, but uh, a little more ethereal and, and you know, truly terrifying, actually. <laughs> well, this one was just, uh, yeah, I wasn't consciously, consciously trying to do that, but it was It's definitely, I guess, in that tradition. It's a coming-of-age story, which you know, is a, is a staple. You know, the intent was just to be, is just to give this voice the honesty and, and clarity that, uh, you know, that I felt that the story warranted and just, just to be true to it, really, you know, it's like, and, uh, you know, I wasn't concerned so much about what kind of story it was or where it fit in, uh, in, uh, you know, the landscape of, of, of current American literature. It was just, it was just, once you're in it, it's just the story you're telling, you know, and you just try to be as honest to it as you can. 
you know, one of the things about this story is it's very propulsive. Early on, you set up a, a number of re things that the readers really want to know. Early on, we have, in the first chapter, the uh, diner where Annabelle and her father Sam work is is robbed. And we learn, too, that the mo her mother is gone. So talk about... Um, in, you know, splitting up the, the mother and her daughter and making that decision, was that an easy decision to make? Or was that, how how baked in was that? That was that was very much baked in uh, to her who her character was. Uh, she was somebody who needed to be in a place uh, where everything that she had counted on was, uh, was kind of failing her. You know, uh, the stability of her home life. Uh, her mother was gone. Her father was kind of broken by grief uh, and, you know, disappointment. Uh, you know, her in the first chapter, the diner where she works with her father is uh, is attacked and, uh, and her father is physically attacked. And the response of the community she finds to be uh, tepid and, uh, and, and weak. And so everything that she, all the rules that she counted on, you know, are suddenly... Uh, are suddenly not trustworthy anymore, and uh, and that had to be the case so that uh, she could uh, she could launch on uh, on her journey. You know, she has to be driven to make a radical choice to start this whole thing off, and uh, and so that sense of that sense of disconnect was very much part of of who she is from the very beginning. You you know, one of the things I found most uh, compelling about the book was the way you kind of subtly set up several different mysteries as to what that that really drive the narrative and I'm thinking now about what you call the silence and the title of the book mm -hmm. what the strange is the nature of, of their dishwasher <laughs> as it were so <laughs> t t t were those things decisions that came out of the narrative or were they did you think about them and say, okay, I'll plant these seeds early and see how they grow? A little bit of both. With the strange itself, that was more of a let's plant the seed and see what happens. I wasn't entirely sure myself when I started. And that had to be something that was explored and revealed as the story went. And I had to, I had, that was something that I had to go back and tinker with a lot and, and, and figure that out. Um, with the silence, not so much. The silence was just the kind of like the background radiation that would affected the entire story and everybody on this in this world. You know, the silence uh, for people who haven't read the book is just communication with Earth. And this is established right at the beginning. Communication with Earth has gone quiet, and nobody knows why. Uh, there's just there are no more ships coming. There is no more communication. It's just gone silent, and so this community feels and is abandoned. And, you know, it's with some of these mysteries, too, the idea is that I like, to, I like to think about the idea that the mysteries that we experience in our own lives uh, often uh, never get solved. You know, there are questions that we have that don't get answered. And, um, and not every question in this book is answered. And that's part, of, that's part of what she has to learn and discover and come to terms with, is that um, you, don't, you don't always get satisfaction. You know, one of the things, too, when you read this book, it, it, one of the first, you know, things that comes to mind 
I think for most readers who who read this book, or many at least, is Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, which reimagines American suburbia transplanted pretty much wholesale uh, to Mars. And, but for me, the, the Ray Bradbury um, story that casts a shadow over this is, is one that's lesser known, uh, Boys, grow giant mushrooms in your cellar. <laughs> I'm wondering if, if you are familiar with that story, if that played a part in some of the uh, more horrific aspects of this. Uh, that one did not. Um, if that's in the Martian Chronicles, then I've read it, but I don't recall it. It's not. It's a different book. Okay. Yeah, I, then I don't think I've read that one. Um that being said, though, the Martian Chronicles definitely casts a big shadow over this. I, uh, that's a book that is dear to my heart. And um, and this book is very much a kind of, a, you know, uh, a letter of thanks and gratitude back to Bradbury uh, for for what he's done for me in my imagination as, you know, my whole life. And so... Um, yeah, the, you know, any, 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 uh, any echoes of, or, you know, reflections of the Martian Chronicles you might detect are very much, very much intentional. Annabelle sets out on a quest, and this quest is to find a, a cylinder uh, that contains some recordings of her mother. And one of the things I think that you do really interestingly is subtly weave this idea of the cylinder which um, also is how, uh, I think maybe perhaps uncoincidentally, how H.G. Uh, Wells des- describes what falls to Earth from Mars in uh, his book. Um, so talk about, uh, you know, the cylinders also play a part in the AIs, and I think you do a great job of developing these AIs in this book. There's a... a her, she's a company, Annabelle is accompanied on request to find the cylinder that's stolen from her uh, parents' diner um, by uh, an AI that is essentially, she calls them a dishwasher. Yeah, uh, so they, they call their robots engines in the book. And, uh, and these cylinders have this particle called the strange, which is being mined on Mars which give them the illusion of personality. So uh, this, uh, this, uh, her companion is called Watson. He is a, basically a, is a robotic washer of dishes. He works in the diner. That's what his function is. And he's got this little cylinder implanted in him, which gives him the illusion of having a personality so he can carry on conversations. Well, you know, um, two, your thoughts on, on AI, you know, the whole idea of the cylinder and the strange that, that being the, the, the spark of the personality is really interesting because right now we've just been handed this, uh, it's a computer program called ChatGPT, which mimics personality, but it's really, you know, for all the uh, foo-for-all about, you know, it telling people via Bing that it loves them and such. All it's really doing is pattern matching. It's not much more than a, a linguistic version of the TI calculators of the 80s, which ushered in a panic that nobody would be able to add. 
And it turns out that nobody <laughs> needs to add in the future. We can just find the ubiquitous calculator to do it for us. And I think that your idea of the strange is having this, giving this idea of self-consciousness uh, to the AI so is really interesting. And the dishwasher uh, is not the only um, engine out there, is it? No, there are, well, there are several uh, that exist uh, on Mars in very kind of like utilitarian capacities. Um, there are, it's hinted that there are, well, it's actually said that there are several back on Earth too. Um, but she encounters, uh, she encounters some out on her journey uh, called war engines, which were, which were essentially robots made for combat, left over from a war of a, uh, you know, a couple of decades previous. And they have, uh, those intelligences have um, have grown and uh, and strange ways out there, and she encounters a few of them on her trip. You know, one of the things that's interesting is I think that the concept, in a sense, of of the wilderness, and because on Earth in our modern age, we know every inch of the Earth, and those, and we can pretty much by virtue of uh, satellites. I visit any part and and so there's no part that's there are no real wildernesses for us to explore but in a, on our world it's pretty much all wilderness and I think that that gives you the ability to take her out into a truly unknown world which is something that we can't really do that easily back these days yes uh, and it's a uh... It's uh, it, it really kind of like takes the chains off too, as far as what is what is permissible in the narrative. Um, this is a good point to point out uh, that you know the strange, even though it's called a science fiction novel, there's nothing scientifically accurate about it remotely. It is a completely a, uh, a it's a fantasy novel, really. It's uh, this is a fantasy Mars with fantasy rules, and nothing nothing about the real Mars impacts this at all. It's a realm of the imagination. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so the things that she can do, the things that I can put in there are, 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 are wide open. And, uh, and your observation that it, the entire thing is a wilderness is actually true. And this is appointment, or this is a point rather that is made to her, you know, a couple of times throughout is that she doesn't know what's out there. She's, you know, her, her idea of what the world is and how it works is very small and, uh, and and uh, and uninformed really. There's a much bigger place that she's a part of that she's just not aware of yet. You know, I think despite the fact that it is completely, you know, uh, it is a, a fantasy. You give it enough grit and ground it in the telling and the narrative so strongly that it feels more real than something that might be, you know, much more scientifically accurate. You know, for example, I guess like uh, The Martian where the, the character stranded on Mars. But this feels every bit as realistic. And I think that that speaks to the power of story itself for you, that you're able to marshal so much... Um, focus on the characters realistically that reactions to the fantastic situations 
that enables you to do that wonderful trick of science fiction where you externalize things that we can't talk about in reality, but can talk about when we set them in a fantasy setting. Yeah, well, thank you. The um, I think the, the, well, my approach to these kinds of stories, especially the, when they're more outlandish, uh, is this one can is this one will you know becomes is uh, is to not worry so much about what's plausible. Uh, just I'd throw that out the window, um, and uh, you just take this outlandish scenario that you need to have happen for the story, and you just buy into it. That's what you need to do. I think is just take it seriously every minute. Um, take the characters in it seriously. Take the situation seriously. And when you're you know writing these characters or inhabiting these characters um they're in a part of that place and so every emotional reaction every every kind of like lizard brain impulse that they have is affected by that and if if you take this world seriously and give it the detail and and care that you would if you were writing about you know um brooklyn new york for example uh then if you do it well enough the reader will too and so you can get crazy and you can get outlandish. Um, but if you honor the integrity of that of that imaginative space, then you give the reader something, hopefully, you give the reader some solid ground to stand on. They can occupy it, too, without having to question it. That completely and seamlessly accomplished. And I think part of this is it's certainly due to Annabelle's voice and Annabelle's creation as a story, as a character. But the rest of the characters are are also utterly believable from, you know, the father who's not exactly weak, but he's just not the, the pillar of strength that, that Annabelle is. And the other characters, too. Uh, in particular, I think one of the ones I've, I've most enjoyed was Joe, the, the spaceship pilot who has decided that he can no longer fly his spaceship and. He's a really fascinating character. How did you know everything about him when you first created him? I no, I didn't. I I don't know. I don't know everything about any of the characters. I think in the beginning, a lot of the times the writing process is full of revelation. With Joe, I knew that he was frightened. I knew that his life was defined by fear, and that led to everything. Everything else. Um, but, uh, but I liked him, you know, I like all the characters. I even like my not so nice characters. You know, I think they're like, uh, you know, it's, it's part of what I was saying before about taking the world seriously. When you're writing a character, even if it's a small walk on part, that character is a three dimensional person. Like that person comes on with a point of view and a history. You don't have to know all the history, but you've got to know how, how that moment feels to that character. And uh, and uh, and their reactions have to serve. I'll say this uh, in a way that makes sense. They're, you know, their reactions have to be true to them. You know, you can't just have a character say something that it feels wrong because it pushes the story in the direction you want it to go. They have they have, you, even the minor characters have to have their integrity. That's what I'm trying to say in a, in my clumsy way. That's part of the fun of writing these these characters too. Is like you you get a sense. Hopefully, I have the sense, and I hope the reader has the sense that these are real people moving in a real world. And then once they walk off the page, even if they only have you know a page or two of dialogue with uh, with Annabelle, that they're going on and living their their lives. They're in in a, in a full you know fully expressed way elsewhere. You know that's that's the illusion that you hope to hope to uh, create. 
uh, again, mission accomplished. <laughs> it, that you know, and it's interesting because, um, so at one point we we when the diners robbed, there are two somewhat minor characters, and we see them uh, acting during the robbery, and later on, um, Annabelle sees them again. And even though, you're right, even though they're kind of small characters, they're acting in ways that seem consistent with the way they first we saw them, and also with the way that they have been affected by this thing inhabiting Mars, or, you know, by the strange, which is an environmental hazard. And I, I think that that's an interesting, uh, you do a great job of tying characters together so that, you know, everybody has a, a very propulsive feel to it. it. Every page you turn, every character you encounter, it's right. It's also clear too that you like them, even the the, the bad ones, and, and you give them uh, uh, the feel of life. I, I guess that people are never one hundred percent one way or the other. There's always some kind of sympathetic hook in them. Yeah, and people have reasons for believing what they believe, even if it's even if it's like antithetical to what you believe. It's like they're not they're not cartoons. You know, there's something brought them here there's a there's a reason they were they have come to this place and i think i think it's important if you're writing these characters even small characters to know that and to uh and you know that has to inform who they are and what they do and how they act you know the the bad guy isn't a bad guy because you need a bad guy if you're in the bad guy's head he's got justification who knows what it is it depends on the story but 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 he's here for a series of of reasons and because of a series of circumstances where where he's doing this thing because he believes it's a thing that is either the right thing to do or a thing that he must do. Yeah, I, I think you know that's important for all your characters. Now, one of the things, of course, that I love about this world is all the weirdness that runs through it, uh, summarized effectively by the title, The Strange. And, and I think that... Uh, in creating this weirdness, you you do a really good job. That, how much of this was in your brain when you put pen to paper at the beginning of the novel, creating the place, you know, the our town scenario, and how much of it um, evolved in the terms of the the writing? You're well known for horror, and I think you do a good job at bringing veins of that in in the writing without letting it overcome the narrative the uh i'd have to say most of it came through the act of of writing it out uh there were like vague notions in my head but like sketches really like uh like 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 shapes or color smears that kind of thing um almost always especially when you're we're talking about you know some of the weirder or more baroque elements they're only found by through the process of writing. You know, it's like you have to start digging through the rock in order to find those those veins and see where they lead. And um, uh, yeah, that was very much the case with the strange. I'd say maybe I started out with twenty to thirty percent of it, and the rest of it just evolved organically from the process. That that goes to in the experience of reading, it it all feels very organic, like it's all part of one big piece. And I'm wondering. 
um, do you have uh, plans or ideas to continue pursuing this, you know, sort of world you've fantasy world you've created and further work? Well, there are no plans per se to go back to this Mars. That being said, there's certainly a lot of ground for it. There's a lot of space for it. There are places I mentioned in the book that we don't get to in the story. Uh, there are characters. There's a throwaway line. Uh, the sheriff is talking about two two criminals he once chased down named Garrison and Cohn. And I've been kind of obsessed with who they are and uh, imagining what their story was. So no, no, no plans, but possibilities. Yeah, plenty of possibilities. Annabelle is has is joined on her quest. She has de determined that she's going to find one of the uh, um, implements, uh, a cylinder of recordings of her mother that were stolen, and she has to she enlists uh, Joe, the spaceship helper, a uh, spaceship pilot, a and another woman. So. Talk about creating Sally Milkwood, who's just a, an incredibly good character. Sally Milkwood became uh, maybe second only to Annabelle herself, my favorite character in the uh, in the in the in the in the novel. She was so much fun to write. Um, she's uh, she just kind of came organically too. I didn't really intend for her to be a major character, and then she kind of walked in and and and. And was there. Um, I liked her voice too much. I liked the interactions a lot. She's this very, she's a kind of a coarse, um, she's a moonshiner uh, and a carter in this, in this, uh, in this novel. Um, and she's just a very a rough hewn uh, 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 kind of a mountain woman is who she was before she went to Mars. And she was someone who worked hard and, you know, skated the poverty line her whole life and, and, uh, and never really had a, a role to play, at least that she felt where, where she felt she had one. And then when all of a sudden people needed uh, colonists on Mars, they needed people who were willing to work hard and, and were not afraid to, uh, of a, of a, of a, of a tough, poor life. Uh, that was her. And she was eager for that. It's like, oh, finally, somebody needs me to do something. People like me are required. And uh, things don't go how she planned. But, um, but uh, yeah, she's just this cantankerous lady who I just kind of fell in love with. You know, uh, the heiress, the too, is so, so reminiscent of... Um... Uh, the woman who built the museum in San Jose, the the heir, uh, and, and I thought that there was a, I really did a good job of creating a, a minor character who's really powerful, and in the underneath her house, at one point Annabelle gets to stay, spend the night with this woman, and underneath her house is like this whole world. And I think that that, you know, suggests that in in the way that inside all of us, inside wherever we live, we also bring these interior worlds that are full of like fears and, and uh, caves that we can burrow into and find, you know, sometimes the worst part of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's you talk about the widow Kessler. Uh, yeah. She was. 
she was a character um, who came from the early idea, the Our Town uh, idea. She was someone who who jumped ship onto the onto the new novel or onto this novel uh, from that earlier iteration. You know, she's someone who's haunted by by grief, much like many of the people in New Galveston are. Um, and uh, and she's kind of taken on a very particular role uh, in this story uh, in how she how she manages that grief, which I guess I can't talk about without giving away some things that people should <laughs> yeah, you know too, um this kind of uh, coming of age uh, story is is a a classic you know American. A story, and I think uh, it's interesting that you know you chose a young woman to to tell the story and to you know undergo this this wonderful adventure, or wonderful for us to read, <laughs> less so for her to experience. Uh, talk about uh, you know creating that kind of character arc. Did did that arc uh, make itself, or did you find yourself like you know a a, a just you know, conceiving of it in the beginning and then uh, letting it go where it will? Uh, a little bit of both. You know, I, I knew that I wanted it to be about uh, this uh, young girl and her kind of, her, her, her kind of coming in, her, her idea of how the world works, clashing with the reality of how it works and her kind of having to adjust her perceptions. And part of that was because, you know, I'm a father of a, my daughter is was younger at the time I first started playing with this idea. And, um, you know, like any parent, I started worrying about, uh, about what would be left for her uh, after I'm gone. You know, would she be able to handle herself? Would she be able to get by in the world? Um, you know, the very basic, basic concerns that parents have for their children. What's going to, what are they going to do? Are they going to be Okay. And uh, and also at the time, you know, our you know our society is going through some pretty seismic shifts right now, and um, that's uh, disorienting. Um, and um, and so all that kind of played into this idea of what happens to this to this uh, this girl who's who suddenly has to uh, who has to manage has to navigate all these all of these things happening to her at once. Um, is thrown back on her own resources and nothing that she's counted on is there for her anymore. And she's got to pick herself up and, and figure it out. And, uh, and she has a, you know, she's a reader of pulp fictions and dime novels in the beginning. And she's got a very simple idea of right and wrong and what is, what should be and what shouldn't. And uh, that gets, that gets pretty seriously complicated uh, when she goes out and engages with, with, uh, real life. And, um, and so I knew that I always knew that was going to be her arc and I didn't know exactly where she would land, but I knew that that was the journey that she had to go on. Uh, a classic advice in science fiction novels are robots as characters, you know, hailing mm -hmm. from Isaac Asimov on forward. And you have wonderful, a wonderful character in here. Uh, Watson, who who's her engine, as she calls it, talk about uh, creating the idea of the engines and you know making a decision to turn them into characters. Because one of the things that that I was struck by was that 
even the minor minor engines that have characters that you know are out there in the wilderness that we meet only for a couple scenes they feel like they've been you know they've lived lives and, and taken things in and become characters well that's good to hear uh that was the hope um they're there i mean so much of this book is like i was saying before just kind of like a, a love letter to to older uh, science fiction books that I grew up reading as a kid, or even ones I didn't necessarily read, but would stare at the covers of, you know, the cover art. And I might know, um, I might not know what the stories inside were, but I would look at the images and I would imagine what the stories might be like. And all of that kind of swirls together, you know, into this kind of like primordial stew. And uh, that gives me this sort of, uh, you know, this abstract notion of, old science fiction. Um, Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, plays a role in that too. And um, and so I just wanted to put all those all those images in there that, that resonate with me, that are like like kind of like lodestones for me. Um, there's this rom- Mars is romantic to me. Mars is this is this romantic wild place of the imagination. Flying saucers, robots, uh, all that stuff, all that stuff that just gave me so much joy as a as a little kid to think about and to read about, to look at pictures of, throw it all in there because I love it and I want to, I want to honor all that stuff. And so that's 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 why Watson is there. That's why he looks the way he does. That's why the ship is a flying saucer. That's why that's why Mars. You know, it's just because it's romantic and exciting and fun for me, and uh, and I love that, and I wanted to. I wanted to honor it. Yeah, that that's really interesting. That the the look of the novels, because I remember as a kid first seeing you know the Frazetta covers for mm. the Burroughs novels, and, and you know they were so captivating. You could you could almost just experiencing a, a story by looking at some of those images. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, and, and when we're when we're too young, you know, we, we, might, we might try to read those stories, but they're written for more sophisticated readers, at least than I was at the time. Um, and so I just had the pictures and. Um, and, uh, you know, in many ways, this is uh, as much about the art of old science fiction as it is about the stories. <laughs> That's really interesting, because I think that informs our experience of the narrative is when we're reading, we're immersed in the voice, but also we're kind of like writing and directing a motion picture based on what we read. And uh-huh. this is kind of in a, I hadn't realized this until you said that, but this is like, you know, reading a Frank Frazetta novel <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And it's, it's a, I love to hear that, and you know, and I think about you know when I was first my first encounter with Star Wars, the uh, was the Ralph uh, McQuarrie pictures. Am I saying his name correctly? Mm-hmm. Uh, I found them so much more resonant and and uh, and and thought provoking and exciting uh, than the actual movies. And which is, yeah, I love the movies as a kid. I'm not putting them down, but but the the art that he made for them just just hum. With this beautiful romantic energy, and uh, and which to me is much more powerful uh, than what we saw on the screen. 
You know, um, one of the things I think that also really informs this novel is your, you know, the quality and, you know, all your experience writing horror fiction goes into this novel and you use it really well to create scenes that are chilling, but not so horrifically grotesque that, you know, you're just going, oh my God. Which is the case, for example, in Wounds, where there are, are some really terrifying images that might shake you out of a longer narrative. Talk about modulating the horrific grotesquerie so you have create the terror without, as Stephen King calls it, going for the gross out. Yeah. the uh, Well, horror is just a tool. Um, it's never a means to an end. I mean, it's never the end point uh, uh, for me. It's not, I can't say that. Sometimes I say, I'm just going to write a horror novel or a horror story and, and just try to do that. But more often than not, it's just a, it's a, it's a thing. It's a thing to use to get at what I'm trying to get at. And uh, it's one of my favorite tools. I love it. But, um, but in this story, it had a role to play, but it, you know, the strange isn't, a horror novel. It's not about that. It's not about being horrified or being scared. Um, uh, but there are elements of that that are essential to the story. There's a sense of oh, the weird and the creepy and the eerie uh, that that permeate uh, Mars itself, and how and, and the way that these characters perceive Mars is through that prism. So it was necessary to be there, uh, but it's. You know the word you use was modulating, I think, and that was and you know that's essentially exactly what had to happen. You know you you want that flavor of of creepiness, you want the eeriness and the strangeness, but you don't want it to overwhelm uh, the actual story itself. You know what the what the main thrust of the narrative is, which is you know Annabelle's story, uh, which is not entirely horrific. It's about many things besides that. It's partly that but it's also other stuff. So it's just a, you know, it's a question. It's like an ingredient, you know, it's a, it's, is you don't want to put too much in there to, to spoil a dish, but uh, I'm mixing my metaphors wildly here, but, but, um, but it's necessary to a degree. You know, the, the experience of Annabelle, one of the things that makes this book such a delight is that, we actually see her grow up and learn things in this novel without being, she's not like effectively being taught. We don't see any kind of like, you know, lessons, young, young Luke. But, yeah. but what we do see is that she understands that her initial reactions to things are not getting her the results she wants. And she's going to have to change her behavior in order to get the results that she wants. And sometimes it's not even to get what she wants, but she's just going to have to learn that acting like that doesn't make her, it doesn't help her and doesn't make her happy either. And I think that that's truly capturing the essence of what growing up is. I think so too. And I think, uh, you know, you refer to other things like lessons. That's the, I really can't abide that sort of didactic approach to when I encounter it in fiction. I feel like it's condescending to the reader. I feel like it's this, you know, it isn't always, I suppose, but, but that's typically how it comes off to me. And I, I, as a reader, I don't want to go to a book and, and feel like I'm reading an, an instruction manual. Like, you know, someone is approaching me from this lofty position and telling me, you know, 
how things are. I, I, I don't need that. I'm, I don't think most readers want that at all. And, uh, and so I'm very glad to hear you say that it does not come off that way at all. Uh, this, you know, the story doesn't, doesn't presume, I would never presume to impart, impart lessons to anybody at all. Um, I think the story is just about, as you say, it's just about, you know, her perception is changing uh, because it has to change. She had, she thought one way and it turns out it's more complicated. And in my experience, that's almost always what I discover about anything. It's more complicated than I thought. I don't know as no, I don't know as much as I thought that I did going in. Um, the older I get, the more the more steeped in mystery the world seems to me, and um, I find that exciting and very welcome. That's uh, I think that's a wonderful thing. If I can bring Annabelle to that same realization, then I think I've done my job for her. It, it this is a perfect example of. The older, as, as you get older, you learn that you become more increasingly wise that you know less than you think that you know and that you need to know more <laughs> to be able to, uh, you know, compensate for your own lack of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the... That's my experience anyway. You know, every answer opens up two or three more questions. And uh, and how exciting is that? And, uh, and and that's, again, that's getting back to what part of the, what Annabelle has to realize in this book is that some mysteries stay mysteries. Sometimes you don't get answers. And we have to be content, I believe. If, if we're going to be content, we have to accept that the... There are always going to be mysteries, and we won't get answers to all of our questions. Of course, one of the things that makes reading any novel enjoyable is the prose, and the proseness is just amazing. Um, a, a result of great the great voice that Annabelle brings to things, how much of this road itself and how much had to go back and be carved back from the mountain of you, what you are creating to the statue of what you hope to want your audience to read? That's a complicated question. It's a, there's a, there, a lot of both it feels like. Um, with with Annabelle, it's a first-person narration, and a lot of it, as I said, felt like dictation. I just got to sit back and just let her talk and, and write down what she said. Um, that being said... Um, there was plotting involved too, more than I'm used to doing. Uh, this is a first novel. And so there was a lot of just reshaping and tearing down blocks. At one point I wrote 20,000 words in the wrong direction. I had to just take the, take all of them and dump them in the garbage and, uh, and start from, you know, start again. And, um, you know, uh, the ending was rewritten, uh, through the editorial process. And, uh, um, you know, the, the first ending was not, it's not a, it's not the right one. And I had to, I had to figure out what the right one was. And um, so there was a little bit of both. I mean, just the, the voice and the narration came flowed, uh, but the steps and the structure and the, uh, and, and uh, just getting all the gears to, to work that, that took some time. That took some labor. You know, 
what's interesting too about the book now I think about it there are some portions that are really satisfying just to read because we hear Annabelle speaking so clear and we really enjoy being with this person and there are other parts of the book where I mean it's a very intense kind of like set piece I'm thinking of an attack that is just like you know the page you cannot turn the pages fast enough and you know uh, it all flows as one piece of uh, narrative yet I'm wondering for you as a writer were you like kind of changing uh, pace or, or how did you accomplish these kind of changes from uh, I guess more contemplative interior narrative to go to do narrating something that's you know a, a chase scene yeah, that was more unco- that kind of pacing is more of an unconscious thing. It's not something I think about, but it just sort of organically happens. I think that's a kind of a macro version of of just changing your pacing in a paragraph. Where if you have, you know, there's examples you can find where you know you have a paragraph. If every sentence is five words long, the paragraph is unpleasant to read. Um, whereas if you vary the tones, vary the sentences, vary the pacing. There's a poetry to it. There's a flow to it, um, which I think uh, I think is is applicable to narrative pacing over the long haul as much as it is, as it is to the flow of the sentences in a paragraph or a page. I think they're both, you know, branches of the same tree. And so that's not something that I, 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 I thought of consciously, but uh, but I do think it's important as a reader and a writer that there is that variation in pace and tone, and and uh, you know you don't want you don't want to get you know uh, you don't want to put people to sleep with the pacing of your story, um, and even and by that I don't necessarily mean it has to be fast paced because a, a story that's all fast paced is also can be a bore, you know you want variation and you want moments of reflection and then you want uh, moments of more frenetic pacing. Uh, yeah, you just want to, you just want changes in rhythm. Now, um, you've been lucky to have, you know, sympathetic adaptations of your work. And this book seems, uh, extremely well suited. I mean, uh, one of the things that makes it pleasant to read is that you can see this whole movie unfolding in your own tiny brain. Uh, have you seen that? Has anybody, uh, offered to take it further uh there have been some uh, nibbles of interest nothing has actually uh happened yet um i hope that something does but uh but you know you could just never tell with these things it's uh it's i've i've found that it's best not to uh not to think about it too much even once you get those nibbles because at first it's very exciting and you think maybe something's going to happen um but it's just so out of your control. You just have to just let that go and, and focus on the next piece of work and uh, and let that take care of itself one way or another. Um, if there is ever any adaptation that happens, um, I expect you mentioned a moment ago that the first adaptations were very uh, were very felicitous to the material. Um, that's not something I stress about either. You know, I think one of the things that is exciting about having your work adapted is is watching somebody else take the idea and do their own thing with it. Um, I'm not precious about that at all. It's like I think of it as variations on a theme. 
you know, um, and it's exciting and it's fun to see someone work your idea into a different shape um, and maybe come to different conclusions from the premise. Uh, that's that's part of the fun of it. it it's good whether Leonard Bernstein or Herbert von Karajan adapts that Beethoven. It all sounds good. <laughs> exactly. Now, uh, what are you working on now? Are you working on more short stories? Or are you going to follow this up with an another novel? Do you know? I have got a couple novellas in the works. Um, there's a, uh, a novella that's about to be announced called uh, Crypt of the Moon Spider, which is coming out next year. Um, I think by the time this releases, it will already have been announced. And... Uh, and uh, I'm working on another novel. Um, so not so many short stories. My, I, I just don't, it's not a choice. It's just the ideas that I'm having tend to be longer ideas right now. So I've got an idea for a couple of novels. One is in draft at the moment and, uh, and several novellas. I've got to say, just by listening to the title, Crypt of the Moon Spider, that sounds like another <laughs> science fantasy along the lines of The Strange, is it? It is actually. It's it's not in the same setting by any means, but it's it's a it's what I think of as a lunar gothic. Uh, it takes place on the moon in 1920s, uh, and there's an asylum, and uh, buried under that asylum is a crypt of a very large lunar spider. This sounds delightful. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I've been speaking with Nathan Ballincrude. His new novel is The Strange. Thank you for joining me, Nathan. Thank you so much. This was fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.